When I was a coach at the University of North Carolina, I was often a part of admitting athletes who certainly would not have gotten into the University of North Carolina if it weren't for their athletic ability. And in your book, you Mm -hmm. talk about special admissions to college, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I can remember arguing, not arguing, but discussing with the dean of admissions uh, at times saying, this young man is the best in the world at what he does. And I think Mm -hmm. he's going to be a first round draft pick. And that Mm -hmm. adds value to our community. If Yo-Yo Mon said he wanted to come to North Carolina, the world's greatest cellist, but he didn't have the SAT or the ACT score because English wasn't his first language. Mm-hmm. I had the feeling we'd still find a way to take Yo-Yo Ma. Mm-hmm. After reading your book, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I can honestly say I was coming at this from a place of I care deeply about these young men. I wanted Mm -hmm. to meet them where they were, give them what they needed to succeed, but blanketed in that, there's so many complications that I think there was an assumption by so many at the university that just, well, they can't do the work, so let's not even try. There's, There's a lot to unpack there. One, intentions don't always translate to impact. Mm-hmm. Number two, just like racism is systematic, you can have an individual coach or an individual faculty member or individual mentor who has good intentions, but if the system in which that person is operating in is designed to exploit a particular group, oftentimes the system will override whatever the intentions of that individual were. Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. back with Dr. Joseph Cooper for our second episode on Going Deep. Dr. Cooper recently wrote the book From Exploitation Back to Empowerment, Black Male Holistic Underdevelopment Through Sport and Miseducation. Since our interview with Dr. Cooper, he has left the Neg School of Education at UConn and has moved on to the University of Massachusetts at Boston. So with special admissions, when you recruit a talented, what I would call the person a talented, holistic individual. Yes. Um, and this is another thing I offer in Chapter 9 of the book, is saying instead of referring to um, these young men as athletes, I say they're holistic individuals. They are holistic, you could say holistic athletes, because... 
everybody is born holistic. God gives that to us. That's not something that the world gives us. Now, we socially, through families, communities, systems, either nourish that holistic identity or certain aspects of the identity or malnourish it. With special admissions, the problem with that is that the institutions primarily see value in the person based on their athletic ability and ignores the idea that the institution of higher learning was designed to foster well-rounded educational development. In the example that you gave, the reason why special admissions is problematic is because the system of college sports, number one, it prohibits athletes from economically benefiting at market value based on their ability. So let's say that young person goes to your school. With those four years that they play at your school, coaches, sponsors, universities, all of these entities are making millions of dollars. That young person is getting tuition, room, and board, maybe a few other perks. After those four years are completed, let's say either they get injured, let's say they don't make it to the professional level, not only were they financially exploited by not being able to profit off of their own image and likeness and being compensated market value for what they did, but now for those four years, typically within athletic subcultures, there's this idea of what's called kind of a delayed adolescence that happens. The purpose of going to college is to develop a healthy level of interdependence not independent, not dependent, but interdependent. And the idea is that if there were significant academic needs prior to that point, and then this young person is subjected to essentially a full-time job, and they're being told your primary reason for gaining access here is because of this full-time job, you've already psychologically told them that this is what the priority should be. Um, when the institutions pay the football and basketball coaches more than the university president, You've already psychologically told that young person, this is what is going to be more your worth than focusing in the classroom. And so what happens is, is when that young person is in a classroom, see, most of the people, when they give that example, they think about, okay, let's get them to the university. We'll get them tutors. We'll get them support. But they don't think about what does it, that young person feel when they're sitting in a classroom with their peers who academically are able to perform at a more proficient level than that. Mm -hmm. Think about the level of insecurity and vulnerability that, that the psychological torment. So it's, the, it's not this idea that they're not intelligent, but I gave this analogy at a conference I did uh, several years ago. It was a conference full of all PhD doctors um, in sports sociology. And I said, if we took all of us right now and we all went to the most prestigious institution in France, and we had to play a varsity sport for four years, and we also had to pick a major and graduate, you know, meet certain eligibility standards, how many of us in four years would be able to, to excel in that environment? Nobody raised their hand. And I said, why wouldn't we be able to sell? All of us are intelligent, right? We all have terminal degrees. We're all very, you know, competent. But it's this idea that we weren't prepared to excel in that environment. Mm -hmm. We don't speak French. We're not used to the cultural and educational norms in that environment. They primarily brought us there for our athletic ability. So it's this idea that what is our core reason for bringing them there, and do we have adequate support that would say that we value you, even if you got injured tomorrow, we still value the education and investing in you. And most of these institutions, when they use special admissions, the only thing that they're thinking about is the athletic potential of that young person.
whenever you only focus on one identity of a person, you're denying them their total humanity because none of us are just one thing at any given point. All of us are sons, daughters, friends, leaders, community members. And so what I'm saying is that if you're going to use special admissions, you should have a plan in place. If that young person got hurt tomorrow and could not play anymore, could you still be able to support them educationally? Knowing the, the rigors and the stressors that come with being a full-time uh, Division One college athlete, do you have mental health supports in place for them? Do you recognize the fact that being a black male Division One college athlete at a historically white institution, you're marginalized at least on two levels, racially and athletically? A lot of people look at the athletic identity as a privilege, but it really masks the, the fact that there are problems with it when you're in a class where everybody says, hey, I got here because of my academic merit. The only reason why you're here is because you can run and jump high. There's stereotypes. There's issues there that we, as a, on a systematic level, need to take into account. And it really just gets back to, do you value them holistically? Um, so special admissions in and of themselves, it depends on the school and the support systems that are in place. I do think that they need to be used in a limited way because right now, too many schools are exploiting special admissions to take advantage of these young men. They don't really care about their academic development. They only primarily focus on their athletic ability. And after their athletic careers conclude and they're dealing with some serious trauma, these schools use deficit-based explanations to say, well, we gave them tutors. They just made bad decisions, as opposed to saying we actually set them up for failure by bringing them into a system that primarily celebrated their athletic prowess and did not value them holistically and provide the support accordingly. The complicated thing in all of this is that even when a student is in high school, the NCAA sets these standards up with standardized mm -hmm. test scores and with grade point mm -hmm. averages that the young uh, uh, athlete has to meet these standards. And I've been into mm -hmm. high schools where, you know, I've asked a counselor. I've been in a high school where I've asked a counselor can you tell me what this guy's GPA is and test scores? And I've been mm -hmm. asked, what does it need to be? And when they come to the university then as well, uh, they still have to meet standards set by the NCAA, right. which I'm not saying that they're unreasonable standards, but I'm saying if that student doesn't meet those standards, <laughs> which are set up by white, racist, capitalistic society, if they right. don't meet those standards, then right. the student's not going to be able to move forward. And so this, this charade has been set up for students to meet these standards, even at North Carolina today, even after mm -hmm. everything that happened there. It's a charade. It's an yeah. absolute yeah. charade. You're getting into some deeper issues. So, one, we've got to problematize the way the NCAA was created and how rules got to be the way they are. Um, we know that SAT and ACTs empirically been identified as culturally biased tests, whereby they disadvantage um, students, particularly black students and students who are from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. So that's one, one of the issues. The second issue that you brought up is Understanding that this is where institutions and individuals have some agency.
the NCAA is a voluntary membership. Yes, it is. So, like, schools do not have to opt into doing this. But if you opt into a system that you know um, is engaging in problematic practices, um, then there has to be some culpability on the institutional and individual level. What Number one, yes. I would argue, is that we need to have a serious conversation about expanding sporting opportunities. And we're seeing a trend now. Uh, the young high school basketball player, R.J. Hampton, is going over to Australia. His family is going moving with him. He's going to play professionally. It is a decision that he's making. He just graduated high school, and he's going to play. I'm saying in our society, I value education highly. If there are young people who are talented enough to make money off of their abilities um, without going to education at the time in which our society deems it normal to go, I think they should be able to do that. So Derrick Rose should not have to go to the University of Memphis for a year. And essentially, as you mentioned, the charade, that was surrounding a lot, you know, admitting him to the school, him being there really a semester, because for the one and done in basketball, they don't have to go to class that second semester. And if they're in the March Madness tournament, they're missing quite a bit of class traveling for the tournament, particularly if they go further in it. So there needs to be a separate system that says, hey, we recognize that we love sports, we value it. If somebody wants to go, they should be able to get uh, benefits health benefits, they should be able to get market value, they should have access to lawyers, agents, they should be able to profit off of their likeness separately. Um, you know, you've got young people who are actors, you've got young musicians who are able to do that. We do it in a vast range of areas in our society, but for some reason for athletics, we say that no, you have to be amateurs so that these institutions can profit off of you. So that's number one. Number two, I think we've got to modify the rules to say if we want to keep big-time college sports at these universities, number one, players need to have rights, and there needs to be something akin to a player's union at the college athlete level. Because that will allow the conversations to take place around why these rules are unfair and why they exploit these college athletes. And, and I want to be clear. I personally think that not only do the – men's and the men's football players and basketball players get exploited but i think the college athletes across sports and gender groups get exploited too mm-hmm. and and anytime you put a limit on what they can do around uh profiting off their likeness um essentially they're ambassadors for these brands uh, i know i don't know if it's as prevalent as it used to be but in the past you know coaches would actually get money from these shoe companies for the athletes to wear the apparel yeah, right. Like that would be happening. in their contract. Oh yeah, we got a lot yeah. of money. And so, yeah, that's still like happening. all of all of that, like, how do you justify that? Like, if the athletes are the ones wearing it, how do you justify saying, okay, we as the coaches deserve payment from Nike, Under Armour, Adidas, New Balance, etc.? So there needs to be a, a, a college athlete uh, gov- a union which can advocate for certain rights. So we can talk about what should the standards be. Um, what what should certain rights be. So that will kind of address quite a bit of this. But on the institutional level, I think institutions have to critically say, if the NCAA's policies, if the way in which they're currently set up are not working in our favor, we need to have a conversation about why there's a misalignment in how these policies um, prevent us from doing the work that we want to do. So like you said, let's say there is a big-time school that says, okay, 
some of our young people are not going to meet these academic standards, but we've got systems in place that will support them holistically, not just athletically. And we've got things that are going to measure mental health. We've got things that are going to make sure that after they graduate, that they, uh, you know, at least to the best of our ability, get gainful employment. We're going to make sure that, that we're looking at them more than just being an athlete. I don't see why universities can't take a stand and do that. I think we kind of work in a paradigm where it's like, okay, the NCAA, these are the rules. We've got to abide by them. But the question is, why, though? Like, what would happen if a group of schools said, hey, we don't, and the Power Five is kind of moving in this direction, said, hey, look, the way in which these rules are set up doesn't really fit what we're doing. Um, we think that we should change this, this, this system altogether. I can tell um, you exactly think, what would happen. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing. The NCAA right. would go away. That exactly. The schools would just do what they want to do. And there's some schools exactly. even right now that just right. do what they want to do. Alabama. <laughs> if the NCAA yeah, comes to yeah. investigate Auburn or Alabama football, they just tell them, leave. You're not welcome here. And they Absolutely. leave. But, exactly. But you still, I mean, let's not be naive here. The, I mean, those Power Five schools and schools like Alabama are still exploiting their athletes. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. However, absolutely. however, if you if you remove the kind of facade of regulation, I, I think your Alabamas and Auburns would be happy as clams to pay players. I don't think they would be against it. I really don't. Right. I think, and I think, it, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, there's two arguments here. One is the economic exploitation. The other one is, like, the academic exploitation. Right. The, the holistic. And so the paying um, the players would address the economic exploitation, paying them market value, giving them access similar to the professional level, uh, which it is professional. The only thing is that they're denied their, their rights as mm-hmm. professional athletes. Um, but they could still be, be malnourished uh, holistically. Exactly. So what I'm saying yeah. is that if you're going to still connect it to education, then there still needs to be a level of accountability um, related to educational development in terms of resources and, and making sure that, hey, we don't just want you to graduate. We want you to leave this institution with a meaningful education that can help you pursue whatever career goal you want to pursue. Support right. them holistically. Um, but that was exactly. still, to me, that is where the major radical shift has to occur. And really, it, it calls universities back to their stated mission and values. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. If, you tr- if you're truly aligning your practices with your values this is what you say you want to be doing anyway and exactly. and how to um i do think it's almost like an exorcism that has to happen to Absolutely. disentangle yeah. our university systems from this capitalist impulse to commodify a certain group of people and Absolutely. and that has been become so embedded that people have a hard time even seeing it. What are the steps we need to take to get there? Because our stated values you're you're actually giving culture, you know, university cultures the 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 assumption that I'm I'm assuming y'all really mean what you say. That you actually right. do want to educate the whole person. 
You actually do want to turn out constructive citizens. I'm actually giving y'all the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. And and that's the part where I I resonate with you so much because I've always mm-hmm. wanted to assume that. And you're you know right. you're younger than me. I, I think I'm getting jaded now. <laughs> I, think oh, I, yeah. no, I mean, so I'm, I'm inspired by your project here because you really are saying like I'm going to take you at your word, people. Like you say, right. this is what you want to do, and I just I really affirm and applaud that. One thing that I was interested that you wrote about was the black masculinity paradigm where you talked mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. surveillance, control, yeah. and exploitation. Yeah. And as a coach, the surveillance and control really resonated with me. Absolutely. We had yeah. conversations as a staff that we need to have these guys busy 24 hours a day so they don't get into trouble and there's always a coach around them. 365 days a year if we could. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that surveillance and control, you just writing it down, really resonated with me. And as I'm out of it now and look back at it, sadly the exploitation does as well. Because I made yeah. so much money off of yeah. these black men who I did care for, yeah. who I did yeah. want yeah. to be the best people they could be, who I think I did mm-hmm. try to help become a holistic person. In college, um, a part of the growth is to have a healthy level of autonomy. And when your schedule is controlled, to the extent that many of these college athletes' schedule is controlled, you're not really developing a healthy level of autonomy. Um, You're very much being told what to do, when to do it, how to do it. And that surveillance and control also signals, you think about from a developmental standpoint, young children like babies and younger children have to be surveillance closely, right? Because, you know, they could go and hurt themselves. Right. Of that nature. As young adults mature and get older, there's a level of if if the maturity is advancing at the rate that we as a society deem to be um, healthy, that level of surveillance should not be the same as it is when they are based. Right? Like there should be a level of I have in, instilled in you certain values, certain awareness about how to navigate and move through different spaces. So that you're making the as most the most responsible decisions that you can make possible. Um, but when you surveillance and control a group to the extent that many of these college athletes are controlled, you're stifling their growth as healthy adults. Number one, and you're you're really taking away their agency to be able to do certain. It's almost like the assumption is if we're not surveilling them they're automatically going to do something negative. Yeah. It's not almost that that's the it's, assumption. It is. That you is know, the and assumption. So, and, and, <laughs> I've been and in if the they room. mess up, it'll when it, cost, when, it'll cost when it, the program. When it's applied to black males, that attaches to the criminality oh, yes. Yes. that correlates with the Central Park 5 situation. Yes. That correlates with the murder of Michael Brown. That right. correlates with the murder of Trayvon Martin. This idea that 
if I don't watch you and control you, mm-hmm. you're innately a criminal. You're going you're to dangerous. do something bad. Yeah. And, yeah. and and we don't do that for all groups, right? Like, you don't look at uh, all of the white females on campus and say, I need to surveillance you mm-hmm. in this way. We don't look at the, the white males in, in all cases in this way. So there's a particular gendered racism mm-hmm. that's, that's applied when it comes to certain sports, particularly football and men's basketball. So what I say is that, once again, back to the players' rights, if, if, if you would say that, look, these are, you know, we are not going to monitor you every second of the day. These are the rules as it pertains to we want you to have upstanding character and reflect the university and yourself and your family in a positive way. There has to be a level of trust there. But once again, a lot of the recommendations I put in the book, you can't remove certain things without changing uh, back to to Marcia's point around kind of an exorcism of the system. As long as the coaches, like Nick Saban makes 14 times more than the University of Alabama president. I believe the last time I checked, he was making $11 million a year. Dabo Sweeney just signed a $93 million 10-year deal at Clemson University. Yeah. Even if you were to remove the surveillance and control, if the economic arrangement is still that way, the exploitation is still taking place. So the surveillance and the control is just an added component of the broader apparatus of exploitation that says we want to keep these young people dependent on us in totality. This is the easiest thing that we could we could we could ask ourselves and be honest about it. Why are certain rules and practices in place? Who does it benefit and, and, and disadvantage, and in what way? And if we can be honest about that, then we could say the current rules are in place not to benefit the black male college athletes, but to benefit those who are economically benefiting the most from the system. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's designed to help make sure that this talent pool is still dependent on them. Yeah. Because you got to think, a lot of these coaches, even if you're well-intentioned, you're going to say, well, hey, look, I can do the good things I'm doing and make millions of dollars, even if these young men are not. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, really, it's only going to come out when somebody who says, look, this is wrong, and and there's not a, a dollar amount that you could pay me that would say that this should be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why it's so hard to change the system because in America, the way things get resolved is you buy people out. Yeah. Even in a lot of these lawsuits with the NCAA, the NFL, they usually end in settlements because people just say, hey, we're going to pay you a certain amount, but the system is not going to change. So I think what those of us who are passionate about these issues, who are passionate about social justice, about human rights, about basic labor rights, um, we have to continue to promote the idea that it does matter to treat people fairly. It does matter that people are more than just athletes. It does matter that certain people make millions of dollars off of essentially not only these young men playing a sport, but risking their lives. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the thing that I talk about in the book as well that typically gets overlooked in this conversation is that the short-term and long-term injuries that ultimately lead to uh, untimely deaths for these black males, 
So you got a lot of these young men who experience, whether it's CTE, uh, post-traumatic, even in, in you all, the film that you all were in, student athlete, the young uh, man who yeah. was at Bradley University, what he's going through, those coaches still got paid millions. Yeah. Those, those institutions are still making money. But this young man and many, many more like him are lost. And, 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 and the institution says, oh, we had nothing to do with that. We gave him an opportunity. We took him out of his community. You know, we did all these things. But the question is, okay, you can highlight all the things that you did to quote-unquote help them. What about the things that you did that quote-unquote disadvantaged them? Right. And things that you did that actually hurt him? How is your particular take on the reforms that need to happen and this again this multi-layered approach um to the 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 problem really how how are you able to take up space in the reform discussion and and i really do want want you to answer that in a you know as briefly as you can because i think what our our many of our listeners are you know on a steep learning curve about just the reform movement period but to me your your argument here there's something different about it there's something singular about it so what i want our listeners to understand is this this particular way of putting things together is unique are you feeling like you're getting much traction in the reform discussion in terms of of the kind of larger movement that's happening i i think that because there's a range of pressures legally, politically, there is some level of a culture shift in our society around college athletes' rights, that there is momentum that's been going on for several years. And mm-hmm. I think the lawsuit by Ed O'Bannon and the class action lawsuit that they did, that was pivotal. Um, I think, you know, what Kane Coulter and Ramogi Huma did with the mm-hmm. Northwestern football players, I do think that the work that that I'm that I'm doing is is helping push the momentum forward. Um, I think it just takes time. This system wasn't created overnight, mm. and I think we've got to utilize every leverage point, um, whether it's education, whether it's the legal system, whether it's uh, activism in different ways, whether it's music, art, um, to help really resonate with uh, different groups of people um, to help them understand why this is so important. You know, people get moved to action when they feel like it impacts them in a direct way. Um, For the black community, this has been impacting us significantly, you know, really, you know, since the 17th century. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of being exploited has just evolved over time, you know, from chattel slavery to sharecropping, vagrancy laws, redlining, mass incarceration. I mean, you name it. Um, So it's just a matter of continuing the fight. I think for me, I just measure success by not only the the young men and women who I work with on a day-to-day basis, but the fact that I know that I'm speaking the truth that I see in the world and Mm -hmm. that if I continue to live that and promote that, that I believe that it will resonate and connect with other people who are involved in similar work. 
and change will happen. Um, There's no change in society that's ever happened without a significant amount of struggle, um, a significant amount of persistence. Um, So I do think what I'm talking about resonates. I do think, as, 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 as John mentioned earlier, when people get introduced to the ideas that I present in the book, because I do take a, a deeper leap than most reformers take mm-hmm. when talking about this issue. Most of them kind of stick to the economic exploitation and that level. They don't dig deeper into the miseducation. They don't dig into the socialization. The socialization and they definitely don't yeah. dig into the humanity aspect of it. And, and the idea of this is a deeper idea about humanity. Um, I find that people have a level of cognitive dissonance initially because it's, like you said, I mean, there's so much in our society that's normalized that it's hard for them to process, oh, that is a bad thing. Like, oh, I can see why special admissions actually does more harm than good. I Mm -hmm. can see why this is a form of exploitation. So I find that it takes people a little bit of time to kind of allow what I'm trying to say to to sit in there, to really look at the evidence that I'm presenting, then really think and reflect, okay, now I get how these systems interact to create these outcomes. Now I get, if depending on the perspective that I'm listening to and that I privilege in this conversation, the perception of what's happening is going to look totally different. Right. And I think you've got to start listening to more people who are directly uh, disadvantaged Mm -hmm. by the system and really understand what they're saying. Because if the only voices that we're listening to are people that benefit from it, that view, even in a well-intentioned way, is still going to be skewed to an extent. Um, I definitely believe in allies, and I believe that in order for this system to change, you're going to have people from various backgrounds, socioeconomically, uh, racially, culturally, et cetera, who are going to have to be on a similar accord around what social justice looks like and what human rights look like. Um, But I definitely feel like my work fits within the reform movement and that it's moving the conversation forward. And I'm hoping that the message uh, resonates with as many people as possible and that we can uh, improve, you know, our collective humanity. That's really what I'm calling for. White racism, capitalism, isn't the best form of humanity. Amen. And what I'm saying is if you agree with me on that point as a starting point, then we can work towards what is a better and the best form of humanity that we can be pursuing. Amen. Amen to that. Dr. Joseph Cooper, we are grateful for your work, for your expertise, um, for, for this new book, From Exploitation Back to Empowerment, and, and for this conversation um, and we hope it won't be your last time on Going Deep um, because there's, I mean, we could have like four more <laughs> shows yeah, on could. this book. It's so rich. And, and John and I are grateful for your time today and we're grateful for your voice. Um, and we hope we can all continue to work together to, like you said, make the world a better place. Thank you so much, Dr. Cooper. I want to thank you all for your your spiritual, your political, um, just your courage overall. Um, you know, given everything that you all have experienced, um, 
you all had a lot of choices to make throughout your entire journey and several choices that you made, numerous choices that you've made have been to contribute to the betterment of our humanity that have had transformative impact on a lot of people within and beyond sports, including several black male holistic individuals who participate in sports. So I just want to commend you all for your courageous um, activism, for your advocacy, um, for your willingness to, to listen, to learn, and to utilize your platforms to advocate for change in the best way. You've been listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.